0: Of an MAPGY6 fellow at Emory University uh, in the Division of Digestive Diseases. Uh, I am going to be running solo today without my co host, uh, Dr. Jason Brown, uh, who is the Grady Memorial uh, Hospital GI Fellowship Site Director. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time or a repeat listener, every month we review recent guidelines and reviews in the field of gastroenterology and discuss the more salient points via the use of interviews with experts in the field. Um, So today we have really a great episode for you. Um, A couple things before we get started. If you haven't already, please leave us a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, And uh, follow along with the article itself, okay? Or the visual summary that was uh, created by um, one of the Emroid Digest members. Um, So, Without further ado, we have a great episode on short bowel syndrome with uh, Dr. Kishore Iyer, And let's get to it. Hello and welcome to the Emory Digest podcast. Uh, today we have a great guest with us today, uh, Dr. Kishore Ayer. Uh, and we're going to be talking about all things short bowel syndrome. Um, so first, uh, for those... Uh, who don't know Dr. Iyer, let me, let me give you a little introduction to who he is and kind of sort of some of his interests. Uh, so Dr. Iyer is the Director of, of the Adult and Pediatric Intestinal Rehabilitation and Transplantation uh, at, at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York. Uh, he is the Surgical Director of their Pediatric Liver Transplantation Program and uh, Professor of Surgery and Pediatrics out at Mount Sinai uh, School of Medicine. Uh, he currently serves on the Pediatric Committee and the Policy Oversight uh, Committee of the of UNOS, or the um, United Network for Organ Sharing, and is chair of the International Relations Committee uh, for UNOS. Uh, his current clinical and research interests are in the areas of surgical management of intestinal failure, intestinal transplant, and TPN-associated liver disease. Um, and really important for our discussion today, um, Dr. Iyer was actually also the lead author on the review we'll be discussing today, uh, put out by AGA uh, Clinical Practice Update on the management of short bowel syndrome. Uh, expert review, uh, Dr. Iyer. Um, you know, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, thank you
1: very much, uh, Dr. Ubnemi. I'm very happy to be here and look forward to chatting.
0: Perfect. Um, so I guess before we get into the nitty gritty, of you know, short bowel syndrome and all these things, um, I guess I'm just curious, you know, how how did you end up, I guess, getting finding your way into surgery, you know, at all like how, and, and, and short bowel syndrome? So, yeah. Why surgery? Uh, I could talk about that just for an hour, but so I won't.
1: I'll skip the Y surgery, and I was and go to the Y short bowel and intestinal failure. I was I trained in general and pediatric surgery in the UK, and was really on the verge of launching my career as a pediatric surgeon when I had the opportunity to work with one of the then pioneers of short bowel syndrome a well-known European surgeon, Adrian Bianchi, um, who we will refer to again credited with the Bianchi procedure. And under his mentorship, I looked after a lot of children with intestinal failure dependent on TPN, and we did what we could in those days. And and Bianchi himself was a very innovative and thoughtful surgeon. And and to bring a long story short, Under his mentorship, I also had the opportunity to look after the very first UK child who got an intestine transplant. At the time, in the early 90s, in Pittsburgh, uh, she was actually the sixth long-term survivor of an intestine transplant in the world. And when she came back, uh, still quite sick, but for the first time in her little life, eating and drinking i thought uh, suddenly pediatric surgery looked very passé and i thought i had to move to intestine transplant that's also the reason why i crossed the pond because nobody was doing intestine transplant Europe. so the rest is history
0: you i guess you had already talked about dr um, bianchi who was it seemed like a really early you know an important mentor for you um what i guess what was it tell us about i guess the relationship you had with dr bianchi and i guess how it how it kind of you know, propelled you into short bowel syndrome or, you know, what, what it kind of did for you?
1: Um, right. Bianchi was a little bit of a maverick surgeon, very innovative, technically very, very skilled, but also very thoughtful and, uh, um, and, and really very creative. And, and in those days, we're now talking his career in the 80s. Uh, there was not much to do for intestinal failure and in short bowel. And he was one of the first to understand that, that you could surgically manipulate residual bowel function to improve um, uh, residual bowel function in patients with short bowel. And these were mostly children. And that his practice was pediatric. And he then first described the um, longitudinal intestinal lengthening and tapering operation eponymously the Bianchi procedure um, which allowed uh, us to exploit dilated bowel and uh, create um, a bowel that was sort of twice the length of the original and half the diameter and he was quick to get to the idea of improving function by surgical manipulation and and so I'm fascinated by his both his practice and his uh, style and so it was easy that uh, i got inspired by this very challenging disease at the time
0: how do you when you think about you know short bowel syndrome um you know and i guess intestinal failure because I, i almost feel like maybe those things are on a spectrum like how do you how do you differentiate those two things and you know how was how do you define one versus the other
1: yeah, that's an important uh, question and, and perhaps fundamental to understanding this disease is um uh, short bowel syndrome refers to anatomic loss of bowel length. So if we, if we confine our discussion to adult patients, the, the generally held agreement uh, uh, for definition is that when an adult patient has less than 200 centimeters of residual small bowel, then the patient has short bowel syndrome. Um, there is some uh, use of a stricter cutoff of a residual bowel length of 150 centimeters. But but most of us would agree that on less than 150 or 200 centimeters of bowel is short bowel syndrome. Now, now notice that this simply refers to a residual bowel length without any um, uh, implications on function. In contrast, intestinal failure is a functional definition that refers to uh, loss of intestinal function to the extent that intravenous supplementation in the form of IV fluids or parental nutrition becomes necessary um, to maintain survival. And that's the distinction. So intestinal failure in the majority of cases is due to anatomic short bowel syndrome. So roughly 65, 70% of cases of intestinal failure are due to short bowel syndrome. But but notably, somewhere around 30% of cases of intestinal failure are due to functional causes where all of the bowel might be present, but it's just simply not capable of uh, normal function. Uh, these are conditions like pseudo-obstruction, very long-segment Hirschsprung's disease, intestinal dysmotility syndromes, and so on and so forth. And, and as a corollary, not all cases of short bowel syndrome result in intestinal failure. Right? You, can, you can understand that very short bowel would result in intestinal failure. That's intuitive. But somebody maybe has 150 cm of bowel and is able to get by without TPN or IV support, and that patient has short bowel but does not have intestinal failure. Um, it is actually not as complicated as it sounds. Intestinal failure is a good functional definition uh, and, and really refers to loss of intestinal function such that IV support is required. Short bowel syndrome is simply, strictly, what it sounds like: loss yeah. of bowel length, and and it's just too short.
0: Nice. Yeah, yeah. I feel like uh, a lot of people, um, there's a lot of um, you know confusion sometimes when it comes to, to both of those. But I feel like you helped really clear that up.
1: <laughs> and 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 we
0: can confound it even a little further. Neither of these definitions spoke to the
1: colon and, and you, as a gastroenterologist, uh, know that, that the colon, while widely viewed as a, as a fluid-absorptive organ under the right circumstances, can also be a digestive organ. So we've not talked about the impact of colon. Uh, and, and if time permits, we should get into the question of, is it better to have 150 centimeters of small bowel with no colon, or would I rather have 25 cm of small bowel in an entire colon? Uh, unfortunately, when we when we are afflicted by disease, we don't get to make these choices. Usually, you yeah. get what you get.
0: But I know which one I would prefer if I had the choice. Maybe I mean you know actually I was I was actually wanting to go kind of in a direction that it's around there. So, you know the 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 expert review or the CPU kind of hits on three different groups. You know, one patients who have essentially an end jejunostomy, um, two. A group two of the patients who have the jejunocolic um of anastomosis that are still in continuity, but maybe just have, you know, some portion of their small bowel resected. Then there's really the group three, which is they have the jejuno ilio colic um, sort of configuration. Um, you know, do you, when you, because I was thinking in my head, like, is it is it more important kind of, what the patient came in with, like if they had a pseudo obstruction, you know, and then developed short bowel syndrome, or, you know, is it really the more important thing, like which of these groups do they fall into? And how do we just get patients back into continuity? I don't know. Like, okay, that's work. a that's a good question, and I think I think we should perhaps
1: emphasize here that the uh, AGA review that you're referring to was really focused, and we were uh, the charge given to us was to focus on short bowel, distinct from intestinal failure. Yes. While 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 there is a lot of overlap, and and some of these principles hold, we should just note that they hold only for intestinal failure caused by short bowel. So I'm going to focus my comments mostly on short bowel and and it is in that context that we describe three groups of anatomy and there's even there there's some confusion in terminology uh, three different types of intestinal failure have been referred to type one being the temporary transient short-term type three being long-term chronic intestinal failure as we know it so because we want to not mix up the terminology, we deliberately chose to uh, describe the subgroups of short bowel syndrome as groups rather than types, though you will see some overlap in the literature. So I'm going to stick to the terminology of groups. We're really trying to make a push to make this distinction in the literature. So so going from group one to group three, there is a decrease in severity. So you can think of short bowel syndrome itself as having a spectrum of disease severity that is uh, that corresponds to the anatomic phenotype of disease. So the most severe is group one short bowel syndrome, the patient with a high jejunostomy. So think of a patient who has 35 centimeters, 60 centimeters of residual jejunum ending in a high stoma with no distal bowel uh, or at least not in continuity. That patient is group one short bowel syndrome. And if you like the most severe phenotype of short bowel, in contrast, at the other end, is group three short bowel syndrome uh, where the patient has lost some residual small bowel but preserves jejunum preserves ilium that's been put back together and almost by definition retains the entire colon. You can imagine that if a patient retains terminal ilium, uh, it's not much of a surprise that that patient retains the ileocecal junction and the right colon and nearly always retains the entire colon. So that's group 3 short bowel syndrome, retaining jejunum, retaining ileum, and retaining entire colon. So group 3 is the most favorable. Group 1 is the most severe. Phenotype and jejunostomy, and we can talk about why one is more severe than the other. And group two somewhat falls between the two extremes.
0: It, so it sounds like, you know, most cases, uh, you would it would be preferred for patients to be put back in continuity. Um, one thing, I guess, as a maybe from the GI side of things, is you know, we what determines whether or not you can put someone back into continuity, or like what. What what things are you looking for, I guess, in a patient maybe who has like an end but still has remaining colon, you know, that determines whether or not they can be Put back together.
1: I don't know if I can be facetious, a good surgeon. No, but uh, <laughs> you can perhaps edit that out. But uh, but but look, there is a serious side to it. Um, but uh, look, it, it, that comment is not completely facetious. Uh, I want to make three points in what we've discussed so far. One. When we speak about definition, notice that we spoke only about what bowel was retained. We did not speak about what was taken out. So, so through your medium, if I can make a plea to anybody listening, uh, pay attention to what was left behind. What is removed is really of no use in your clinical decision making. I tell people it's of, only, it's of use only to the pathologist. What's removed? I don't care. When I'm managing a patient with short bowel, I need to know what's left behind. So it's important that surgeons uh, practice and surgeons are encouraged to accurately report what was left behind. That's important to future management and prognosis. That's number one. Number two... Um, Uh, look, in the context of short bowel, it's, it's such a paradox to be struggling with a patient with short bowel who might have retained unused colon, not in continuity. So in the context of managing a complicated patient with short bowel... One of the fundamental steps, and certainly one of the fundamental surgical steps, is to explore the possibility of retaining any unused bowel. And retaining any unused bowel in most uh, clinical settings means uh, restoring continuity if there is any distal bowel. So nearly always, there are really very, very few situations where we should be managing a patient with short bowel without at least very serious consideration to restoring continuity and recruiting unused distal bowel. And finally, in the context of my earlier only semi-facetious comment, what is the worst thing you can do for a patient with short bowel when you manage this patient? The worst thing you can do is lose more bowel. So any surgical attempts have to be uh, carefully considered, weigh risk and benefit carefully, and if if really, and and, and this is no reflection on anybody, but but it it's, it's a mistake to have a patient with short bowel, uh, perhaps a challenging abdomen, and then just go in if if one's not sure of
0: achieving success without without if appropriate seeking help. Right. Yeah. Um, so then. Um... Yeah, I guess, how do you know when a patient requires TPN? You know, I, I feel like, you know, in the GI world, for whatever reason, um, I don't know. I guess we're, you know, I think we're okay with two fees. But whenever it comes to TPN, we get a we get a little, you know, scared and there's some trepidation there. But I feel like you guys have used it a lot more in these patients and a lot more aggressively with it. So, yeah, what are the, what are the hallmarkers of that? kind of tell you that, okay, we really need to, you know, move the TPN for this patient? That's
1: that's a great question, and it almost sounded like a confession that Gastroenterologist <laughs> Uh, whether it's a healthy fear or disdain, would, would, would rather have a patient subjected to the ills of malnutrition and dehydration <laughs> than risk TPN. Um, can you imagine that I'm not getting any holiday cards from the gastroenterologist? I think it's only a coincidence that the AGA asked me to write this paper. <laughs> um, right, right behind a paper I wrote on on. Lack of knowledge among U.S. gastroenterologists on intestinal failure. I refer you to that paper. Um, uh, I, I called it a cause for concern and learning opportunity. I, I do regard many gastroenterologists as my friends. But to come back to come back to your question, you're right. That sometimes a a difficult uh, and and and. And likely a subjective issue: does this patient need TPN or not? And that's—and I think it's a tricky matter that we've not paid enough attention to. So, so look. I, I, to be fair, I have been looking after intestinal failure patients now for well over two decades. So perhaps my instinct is finally honed. But but there are some there are some clues uh, the patient who has lost a lot of bowel has lost a lot of small bowel has lost some colon it is much safer to presume that this patient needs TPN and then allow the patient to declare himself or herself as not needing TPN and weaning it off safely than to have that patient come to the ER three times in a month with dehydration and kidney disease um, before you start TPN. So are there some clues? Of course there are some clues, right? It's easy to understand. At the extreme, you would have no doubt, right? If you have a patient with 30 with of jejunum ending in a high jejunum, asked me uh, perhaps nobody will argue that that patient likely needs TPN where it becomes difficult you've got a patient with some left colon you've got 67s of bowel and and with with every um, fiber of your being you you really wish that that patient doesn't need TPN because understandably sending a patient home on TPN is a little more involved is a little complicated and and so Hope and a prayer is not a good strategy in intestinal failure. So so it is safer to presume that that patient needs PN, arrange for uh, parental nutrition to be initiated in-house, and then safely transition to the home. And then over the course of the next three, four months, if the patient doesn't need TPN, uh, gradually wean it off. And again, I said gradually wean it off, because in my practice, I see patients uh, who are referenced and uh with multiple, sometimes misguided attempts to wean PNR, they come to you with the creatinine of 1.5, GFR is down to 60, 70, and, and people are wondering what's going on. So stopping TPN is easy, right? It's only a matter of turning off the pump and pulling the central line. However, discontinuing PN safely is much more complicated. And sometimes, because it's a gray area, does the patient with 90 centimeters of bowel, and I can give you multiple examples, right? Does the patient with 90 centimeters of bowel and left colon, does that patient need PN? I would hope not, but I can't be certain, right? There is actually very good data that provides some guidance, Um uh, there's a there's a, what I regard as a landmark paper from Bernard Messing and his group in Paris, 1999, gastroenterology. They looked at the likelihood of dependence on PN in patients with short bowel, and they showed that patients with over 110 years of bowel, by the five-year mark, 90-95% of those patients had achieved freedom from PN. Right, and and. Uh, in contrast, patients with less than they said less than 49 centimeters of bowel, um, by the five-year mark, most of them, 90% of the patients, give or take, remained dependent on PN. So that provides some clue, and they had patients with bowel lengths, residual bowel lengths, between the two extremes, who had who fell a little bit all over the place. But even that, while it provides good guidance leave some unanswered questions. So if, if patients have over 100 minutes of functional residual small bowel, they have a good chance of coming off PN, but not all. It was not 100% who achieved freedom from PN. Most of them did. Uh, that paper did not refer to the, it actually did refer to the impact of colon, but not in the context of PN de- dependency. There's actually a follow-up paper from the same group. Amio was the first author, 2012, uh, I want to say clinical nutrition was the journal. Uh, and they showed that patients with colon had much better chance of achieving freedom from PN. But not, none of these papers told us what would happen in the acute short term and whether, uh, you know, the patients who could come off PN safely could come off over time supported by good medical and dietary management. And that's key. So, uh, so uh, the, the short answer to your challenging question is to say that. If if, if you think the patient meets definition for short bowel syndrome, just presume the patient needs PN. Send the patient home on home PN, and then work on weaning uh, PN safely and allowing the patient to demonstrate that the patient can maintain weight uh, for an adult. Just maintain weight and and satisfactory labs uh, while you're weaning PN. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No, no, that's uh, <laughs> that, that's. I feel like it's a. Uh, Maybe a simple question, but it's also, uh, I think you gave it the appropriate, um, you know, like the answer. I think that's helpful.
1: Oh, well, if I may, I'll give you one example. We have a patient right now uh, who just underwent combined intestine kidney transplant. She had shot bowel syndrome against a background of radiation enteritis for an awaiting cancer in childhood. She had four visits to the ER with acute kidney injury. Before the penny dropped, and somebody said, "Oh, wait a second, maybe this patient needs home IV fluids." Even at that point, they didn't think of PM. And 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 at that point, they called me and said, "What do you think?" They, you know, somebody you would see. Of course, I would see. And and the irony here is that this patient, by the time I even got to see her, and and never mind me, by the time she saw uh, somebody with expertise in intestinal failure she already had established uh, chronic kidney disease. So that by the time she came to intestine transplant, she also needed renal replacement. Right? She needed a kidney transplant as well. So uh, Alan Buckman, at, uh, when he was at Northwestern, wrote a very nice paper. Uh, it was a small case series, but showing that 50% of patients, adult patients with intestinal failure, have subclinical kidney injury. No surprise, right? Between episodes of dehydration, underrecognized need for IV fluids and parental nutrition, they often get kidney injury.
0: Oh, yeah. So we're—I mean, we're yeah—we're uh, delaying <laughs> delaying TPN is, is is not just hurting the small bowel; it's it's, it's hurting other organs as well. So yeah, that's uh, that's helpful. Um, now, I guess for some, you know, for these patients who, um, you know, maybe we we don't see. I guess GI side, we don't see them maybe immediately. Sometimes after they've had, you know, parts of their bowel taken out, and I guess folks talk about these two different phases, um, like the uh, maybe the acute phase and the adaptation phase. Um, I, I guess how, how do you how do you talk to patients about you know what is going on in, in those phases, and then what do you tell them to expect um, when it comes to like you know i don't know nutrition or you know output if they have like an ostomy or you know diet wise like how do you talk to patients about you know their life with much less small bowel
1: yeah uh you know it's an important question um and and the fact of the matter is a it's a long and difficult conversation b it's never one conversation just mm-hmm. think about you and me right The the single most uh Difficult form of compliance in terms of behavior is dietary compliance. Yeah. I drink a lot of coffee. If I got short bowel and somebody said to me, don't drink coffee, I'm going to say, wow, this is a terrible fate, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas coffee may be less important to somebody else. So so it's a long conversation. Some of it is understanding the physiology. And, and very often you can relate the physiology to... So if you have a good understanding, and here it's good to know what was lost, it's good to know what's retained, because many of the consequences of short bowel are easily predictable, right? If you have lost... Uh, it's uh, significant it length of bowel in the jejunum, ileum. You can predict what are the likely consequences in terms of fluid loss, fluid loss because of diarrhea, and if the patient has a stoma, high stoma output, and right behind it, dehydration, fatigue. Um, you know, malabsorption, and therefore loss of energy, weight loss. And then, uh, knowing what specific parts of anatomy have been lost, you can start predicting. Well, if the ileum is lost, oh, you're likely to have B12 deficiency, right? And And so things like that are easy to predict on the basis of anatomy. So so one, that was one of the points we made in the CPU that, that good management of short bowels starts with really understanding the anatomy, and then, in most cases, trying to predict and these are predictable, predictive physiological consequences. Uh, actually, you could get a second year student to manage short bowel. It's not that difficult, right? There are a few, only a few things we're thinking about, and, and most of those are predictable
0: yeah um so then i guess um maybe we could go through maybe maybe a couple of these things that we see maybe a lot in these patients um i guess we've been talking a lot about you know hydration you know getting hydration to patients um you know the 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 actual cpu takes a good bit of time talking about you know (laughs) the the power of like oral rehydration solutions versus you know patients maybe just jugging a bunch of you know hypotonic water or something at home um how do you you know how do you talk to people about you know hydration and and like yeah
1: Uh, We could could focus all of our attention just on this one simple question, right? Patients come, they want to see me, I'm the transplant surgeon, I run the program, and I tell everybody, 100% of the patients we see in our program benefit from dietary interventions, right? 60, 70%, 80% of patients benefit from good medical management. In a very aggressive surgical program, 50, 60% benefit from specialized surgical interventions. If we do all that well, 10, 15% of patients might need intestine transplant. So it's a carefully guarded secret that I'm the least useful person in our program. But, <laughs> but, but, but the dietary principles are actually simple. The principles are simple, right? Uh, so so the, the single most valuable intervention we offer is explaining to patients that they should avoid drinking uh, hypotonic fluids and plain water, and and you may understand the reasons for this, and 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 in very simple terms to a lay audience, I, the body does not allow. Easy movement of free water, and and so as soon you can imagine, free water um, passing through the intestinal lumen. Don Kirby at Cleveland, my good friend, describing describes it as drano for the short bowel patient, and and there's an immediate efflux of sodium ions right behind the water to try and maintain the milieu, and unfortunately, the movement of sodium is accompanied by movement of uh, of uh, hydroxyl ions so so the net consequence of drinking plain water is actually um, a much larger loss of fluid volume through the intestinal lumen. So, so patients who drink a ton of water uh, find that they are having very large output in the form of stoma output or diarrhea. And, and it's a paradox. They're very thirsty. They drink water. The water drives increased output. They're more thirsty. They drink more water so paradoxically we're telling them oh you're feeling very thirsty cut back on the water right and 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 when you think about it for a second plain water is really not a good fluid even for healthy adults to be drinking but because we have so much intestinal reserve and redundancy we get away with it so so the uh, the uh Segue into all rehydration solution is interesting. I think I think if you look back at the medical discoveries of the last a uh, hundred years, old rehydration solution might have saved more human lives than perhaps any other medical intervention, all your biologics for Crohn's disease included. Uh, because when children were dying of cholera in sub-Saharan Africa, mm-hmm. the uh, discovery of oral rehydration solution exploited the free availability of empty Coca-Cola bottles and, and uh, at least boiled cold water. And the original WHO oral rehydration solution was boiled cool water in Coca-Cola bottles with one capful of sugar and eight capfuls of salt. That was the original WHO oral rehydration solution. And why, when we then tell our patients with short bowel to not have sugar in their diet, to not use added sugar, does oral rehydration solution have a small amount of sugar? And it really is a small amount of sugar, it's paradox, it's really very salty with a tiny amount of sugar. But why the tiny amount of sugar? Going back to physiology, that exploits what I'm sure you know well, the sodium glucose co-transport mechanism to drive in sodium across the intestinal lumen and and to retain sodium and and as we said earlier sodium does not move by itself as sodium moves in it pulls water behind it and that's the reason all rehydration solution is the preferred solution not hypotonic fluids or plain water And, and any look the the classic old rehydration solution is not a very tasty solution as I said to you before it's very salty it has a slightly sick um, underlying sweetness but there are ways to cheat there are now more palatable commercially available forms and without getting specifics there are ways to cheat that patients have discovered that you can freeze it make it a slushy it's much more palatable you can flavor it with crystallite powder it's much more palatable and doesn't change its physiological properties Um, we uh, recommend uh, Gatorade the original Gatorade G2 which has some salt uh, preferably uh, with some added salt because it's just a little more sweet than ideal. We Ideally it should be diluted down and then with some added salt it comes very close to a rehydration solution and is a lot more palatable but those are preferable. And then patients sometimes wonder, well you said don't drink plain water so I drank juice and I had a lot of output. When you think about Here's again another reality that most juices are terrible for, for even healthy adults, right? They're just plain water and sugar. Um, so, so juices do nothing for patients with short bowel. They're the equivalent of drinking plain water and adding a lot of sugar, both of which are terrible for patients. So that comes to the, to the liquids. And the last word of advice for patients is not to guzzle. Uh, the old rehydration solution, because that'll increase the output. But to really ideally prepare a liter, two liters, leave it in the fridge, more palatable cold, sip it throughout the day because their GI losses are happening throughout the day. Mm -hmm. Then the last injunction in terms of diet, just sticking to principles, uh, what they've lost in length, most people eat three big meals a day. We now know physiologically it's probably better to eat five, six small meals a day. And that's difficult, requires some planning. And especially for patients with short bowel, what, uh, what, is lost in terms of length, what, what function is lost in terms of length can be somewhat compensated by eating five, six more meals a day. And I tell patients, you have to plan for that. If you're working, you're going to school, that means you have to take mini meals with you so you're not just grabbing the first unhealthy food you find. And then you really must avoid adding concentrated sweets and caffeine because that drives output, as you know, in many situations. And yep. those are the main principles of uh, of diet and short
0: bowel. That was great. Um, so um, I wanted to get—I mean—get uh, to this question, about, I guess, of dealing with patients who have high. Let's say a who has maybe a jejunostomy and is dealing with you know persistent high you know ileostomy output. Um, assuming, of course, you know, let's say the person comes in, they've been checked for infection, that's negative, and you know, you've already kind of talked about you know excessive intake of hypotonic fluids you know let's say they're only drinking you know oral rehydration solutions um how do you you know you know there's a lot of different i guess meds that you know people go through um all the way up to like maybe like tetaglutide, but how do you kind of you know systematically make your way up uh and patients who have just persistent high ileosome output that you can't it's difficult to manage um, yeah. So,
1: so there, there's a very important place for what I regard as standard of care medical management. Uh, it's important to recognize that when there's a massive bowel resection, so early, and you you alluded to this a short while ago, early after a massive bowel resection typically we say the first six months after massive small bowel resection, there's significant gastric hypersecretion. That contributes both to the output and certainly there's uh, uh, hyperacidity. So we uh, recommend a maximal acid suppression in the first six months after massive small bowel resection. And, and, sometimes we do tend to continue it, but the downside of continuing that acid suppression beyond six months is the risk of facilitating bacterial overgrowth. So, so we really want to do acid suppression for the first six months or so. And then, uh, it, on top of that, there, it is, uh, we would use anti and anti-motility agents. And it's important without getting into specific drugs. These are common drugs that you might recognize. Lopramide, uh, um, uh, um, uh, diphenoxalate, atropine combination, Lomodo. Um, these are drugs number one, we would use additively. We would work our way up to the maximum permissible dose recognize this is for long-term use because this is not a problem that's going away. Sometimes pharmacists will say, oh, you already got it, we should not continue it, and they need to be educated as well. So we will work our way to the, at least the maximum dose of 16 milligrams a day for the low-permite in divided doses, the diphenoxalate, two tablets, four times a day, and typically best taken about 30 minutes before meals to try and suppress that increase in output that is uh, induced by meals. And and uh, there is a place for uh, uh, for the narcotic, for tincture of opium, for example. But nowadays it's gotten really quite difficult to get that approved by insurance. And and many of these patients have chronic pain issues and are already on narcotic, so so the role for that is not strictly clear. We do use it in some patients. Beyond that, there are more specialized medications with more limited application. There's not clear data, for example, for pancreatic enzyme supplementation. Um, There is a theoretical argument to use it on the basis that there's not enough contact time with pancreatic enzymes. We will sometimes use it, but it's not clear that the at least the evidence for it is lacking. There is a role for cholestyramine, but I think in very, very limited cases, extreme short bowel, loss of terminal ileum, so that un- Uh, salvaged bile acids presenting to the colon can cause bile acid induced diarrhea and so cholestyramine might have a role there in absorbing um, the unreabsorbed bile acids but keep in mind then that these medications are tricky to use when you think of the pill burden, the medication burden for these patients uh, because cholestyramine is an absorbent that also then needs to be separated from all the other medications and that starts to become challenging So, so it's a very small subset of patients who might benefit from cholestyramine. But these are the predominant drugs that we would use for standard of care medical management. Uh, There is a place for um, oral uh, suppressive treatment for bacterial overgrowth, that's a bit of a contentious topic in uh, short bowel syndrome management. Uh, why is it that these patients are prone to bacterial overgrowth is not completely clear, uh, but but perhaps there are stasis segments related to prior surgery, um, dilated segments of bowel where there can be bacterial overgrowth. Compounded by stasis, so there, are, uh, there is a case to be made for, um, for at least. Uh, a pulsed sporadic appropriate treatment for bacterial overgrowth we typically use uh, um, first line antibiotics like metronidazole or or in low doses short bursts um, I, and and how do you diagnose bacterial overgrowth i'm i'm sort of bringing call to newcastle here but um, uh, we do not use the uh, uh, breath test to diagnose bacterial overgrowth they're they're almost oversensitive and so, so we we think they're of limited value, but in the at-risk patient with classical symptoms, we would consider treatment for a short period. Um, and, and certainly a second line, we might use rifaxman, the patient with short bowel, with uh, small bowel back to lower growth. And then for the patient with having recurrent bowel of so back to lower growth, there is a case to be made to look uh, for um, anatomically abnormal bowel in the form of a dilated segment or a blind loop that might need surgical correction.
0: Nice. Nice. Okay. Um, well, I, I wanted to just maybe at the end, as we kind of like wrap up here, maybe talk to a little bit about, you know, intestinal transplant and, you know, how, you know, how, you know, when people are ready for it. And then how do you, how do you determine, you know, acuity? I mean, I guess, cause a lot of, a lot of people in the GI world, you know, understand the liver transplant, meld score that determines acuity. There isn't, you know, is there a mouth score for patients who have you know <laughs> short bowel syndrome? Uh, okay, so so you you
1: went to transplant, and that's of course important. I think I think this discussion would not be complete uh, without covering uh, GLP two analogs broadly, glucagon like peptide two. Um, endogenous GLP two is secreted by the L cells in the terminal ileum, some in the right colon, and and uh, Dan Drucker, an endocrinologist, was the first to characterize GLP two and show um, its effects on the intestine and what people uh, is a very good paper from Dan Drucker in uh, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that's what the read uh, showed quite dramatically the effects of uh, GLP-2 on crip depth, um, on, on willis height and crypt depth and, but but GLP-2 also has secondary effects and, uh, it slows gastric emptying it increases planktonic uh, blood flow but endogenous GLP-2 has a very very short heart half-life measured literally in seconds. So, to do uh, the I guess the prototype commercial GLP-2 that was approved by the FDA, I wanna say in 2012, um, had a single amino acid modified to give it a longer half-life of about 30 minutes to two hours or so. And, and that allows for single daily subcutaneous injection. And, and, and the seminal uh, confirmatory steps trial, that led to approval of teduglutide showed that roughly two-thirds of patients with short bowel syndrome related intestinal failure, and a point of emphasis, that's the group of patients it's approved for, not just for short bowel, but for patients with short bowel who have intestinal failure, who are PN-dependent or dependent on IV fluids. Roughly two-thirds of those patients met the primary endpoint in the trial. They had at least a 20% reduction in their IV fluid or TPN volume. So that was a meaningful effect. Uh, Of course, the Holy Grail is freedom from TPN, and that was achieved in about um, in the extension studies we reported at some time back and and in the extension studies overall somewhere between 15 to 20% of patients achieved freedom from PN we reported our single center experience after teraglutide was approved commercially and we showed that in a well managed cohort of patients about two thirds of patients achieved freedom from parental nutrition using teraglutide but an important um, important observation there, which has since been very well characterized and described by Paley Epperson in Denmark in a, in a really interesting paper in gastroenterology in 2018 uh, that was a post hoc analysis of GLP-2 trial data. And and that showed that patients with end with stomas and jejunostomies had the maximum uh, volume response in absolute terms to GLP-2 uh, and got the greatest decrease in stroma output and thus the greatest volume decrease in PN, but they were less likely to come off PN, uh, somewhat intuitive, they were in the highest volume of PN to start with. In contrast, the patients with colon in continuity were slow to respond to GLP-2. Uh, they actually had only a modest response to GLP-2, but they... Were the most likely to come off PN, presumably because they started with low baseline volume. So, for, so, so there is value to using GLP-2 in these patients. And today, really, um, for most patients with with uh, short bowel syndrome-related intestinal failure, assuming no contraindications, GLP-2 is worth trying. But I will emphasize after optimization of TPN, after optimization of dietary management, after optimization of standard uh, standard of care medical treatment, there's a role for GLP-2. So one of the important contraindications, um, GLP-2 is intestinal trophic, it is a growth factor, and therefore important to not use it in patients with active cancers of the GI tract and related organs, So, so patients with active cancer in the GI tract in the liver in the pancreas, we should not be using GLP2. By extension, that includes patients with the pre malignant polyp diseases of the intestine. I would not use it in a patient with FAP. Uh, even if that patient's had a uh, panproctocolectomy, you don't know if that patient's harboring a dysplastic uh, periampillary polyp, say, and you don't want to be um, exposing them to GLP2. But other than that, it's used carefully. It's a very efficacious drug, but but should be used uh, after uh, uh, optimization of standard of care. Finally, moving on to transplant, perhaps in the closing minutes here. So so intestinal transplant was approved by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services as no longer being experimental. I think the initial approval was in 2000 and and certainly intestine transplants come a long way but but still carries a bit of a bad rap uh, partly due to ignorance because unfortunately the broad GI community at large has not kept pace with the improvements in intestine transplant outcomes and management and and that's as much a failing of the intestine transplant community as as anything else Um, but, but intestine transplant outcomes have improved, they're still not quite in line with those of kidney or liver transplant, but I will say they're, they're actually much better than kidney transplant outcomes were 20 years at the, after the start of kidney transplantation. So, so Medicare, Medicare said two criteria should be met before you consider somebody for transplant. The patient should have refractory or irreversible PN dependence irreversible intestinal failure, which means irreversible dependence on parental nutrition. But not simply that, in addition, Medicare required that the patient not only did the patient require TPN for survival, continuation of TPN became impossible or dangerous. And why did that happen? Because not only was there intestinal failure, there was also TPN failure. And TPN failure manifests in the form of catheter-related complications, loss of central venous access. Uh, As you know, there are four central veins in the uh, upper extremities, two subclavins two internal jugulars, and then there are two uh, femoral veins where you can place central venous catheters. So loss of upper extremity access, significant loss of upper extremity access, and I deliberately kept it vague. Uh, there's lack of agreement on what is significant loss. Um, you know, uh, if somebody has lost two central venous access sites, should that patient be referred for transplant? Possibly. referred for transplant evaluation, If a patient has the four central veins open but has SBC stenosis, absolutely. You've already left it too late. So so recurrent cancer related infections and Medicare suggested more than two infections in a year or even a single fungal infection or evidence of disseminated uh, effects from infection. The patient who has infective endocarditis or a a bacterial osteomyelitis in the setting of a central line should be referred for transplant if there's no opportunity to win TPN. And today that's become a little more challenging to factor in GLP-2 and the potential for GLP-2. But it's important to treat these patients as not being on a linear assembly line but but recognize that some of these things need to be deployed in parallel, right? You can't say to yourself, I think I can read this patient off TPN but be running out of central venous access and then say, oh my God, I can't breed them off TPN. Is it too late for transplant? So that's this has to be sort of multi, multidisciplinary, and and multifaceted care. And the other big configuration is liver disease in the setting of TPN. What's today called intestinal failure-associated liver disease. I prefer the historic term TPN-associated liver disease. But but waiting until the patient has irreversible liver disease is too late. And here is a, a damning piece of data. Rough, close to 45, 50% of patients who today get intestine transplant also require liver replacement. And that simply means they've been referred too late for transplant. That's a travesty because you have a patient who can be perhaps saved with a single organ transplant because he has single organ failure, and we're waiting as a, as a collective community, we're waiting in close to half the patient for a second organ, in this case the liver to fail, before we refer for transplant, and that's a failing too. So, so that's uh, where transplant stands. What can you think about outcomes today? Um, At experience centers like ours, if we were to transplant 100 patients today, and and obviously we won't, and that's not possible, but I'm just trying to distill the data into something that's easier to understand. If we were to give 100 patients what we call isolated intestine transplant, and isolated refers to uh, uh, without the liver. That's what it refers to, and and very often we're doing these combined with the kidney or combined with the pancreas, That's still an isolated intestine. Of the 100 transplants we do today, we would actually expect that at the end of the year, somewhere between 90 to 95 of those patients would be alive. Clearly not. All hundred. So that tells you that there is some mortality right after in the first year of transplant. Uh, 90 to 95 patients will be alive, and it's important to distinguish that not all of them will retain their intestine transplant. So, in some patients, and the key battleground is is the tussle between the risk of rejection of the intestinal transplant and the high risk of infection. So it's not really one or the other, but the very narrow window uh, in which we have to manage the risk of rejection, the risk of life-threatening infection. And sometimes we lose that battle or we look like we're losing that battle and we say to ourselves, look, the only way we can save this patient is to remove the transplant bowel go back on TPN, allow the patient's immune system a chance to recover, and hopefully live to fight another day. So out of the 90 or 95 patients who are alive at the end of the year, somewhere around 85 to 90 will be alive and and, and uh, retain the bowel transplant. And the good news is most patients who are alive with their bowel transplant are off TPN. And 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 one of the important improvements in recent times has been that in the past it used to be that there was never a time you could say an intestinal transplant patient was doing well. That fear of loss of the graft was never going away. Increasingly we're finding that as patients are getting further and further out, uh, they're really leading close to normal lives, very good quality of life, admittedly on a lot of medication, admittedly with close monitoring. But but by the two, three-year mark, we're seeing our transplantations once in six months, once a year. We're doing lab tests remotely and adjusting the immunosuppression, and they're going on to have good quality of life. So with that, I'm going to perhaps uh, let you close Unless you have any remaining questions.
0: No, no, no. I think we've uh, you've given us you know some some really awesome you know information about you know shortcut syndrome, intestinal transplant <laughs> complications after. So this is actually really comprehensive. I guess the um, I will leave it there. The only thing I guess want to ask you is you know are there any um, is there anything you'd like to to plug you know from this podcast <laughs> you know and you had oh, mentioned you want. To me. <laughs> no, no, you did you walk
1: right into that one you're just being nice
0: <laughs> no 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 because you had mentioned there was that that one uh, there's a like an educational website you have the lift echo website yeah you guys yeah. have like lectures where you talk about you know,
1: yeah, so, so, because, you know, this is, it, it's a broader topic, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of mention it to you, uh, and, and junior colleagues should really look at it, not even specifically at our ECHO model, but the ECHO model more broadly. Mm-hmm. Uh, ECHO stands for Expanding Community Healthcare Outcomes, and was actually started by a hepatologist uh, in New Mexico, San Aurora, and he launched this about 20 years ago for Hepatitis C. And, and, and I'll tell you that I, I, you should look him up because what Sanjeev discovered was when he started as a hepatologist at the University of New Mexico, he was the only hepatologist in all of New Mexico. And the wait time to see him rapidly grew until it was about 10 months to see him. Patients were waiting longer and longer, were not getting treatment for a curable disease, hep C. At that time, it was only interferon and, ribavirin. and but But he was seeing many patients with liver cancers who didn't get to him on time. He was so ahead of his time. He started telemedicine way before it became a buzzword. Then he realized that that didn't change the problem of lack of expertise. It still meant patients were waiting to see the one expert so he decided that what was needed was for him to spread that expertise that he had and if you think about it in many many different disease states the problem we have that leads to disparities in health care outcomes is the lack of expertise And so he started what he called the ECHO project, Expanding Community Healthcare Outcomes. And the idea is very simply to to provide a virtual multidisciplinary team that supports local non-experts, help care for their patients under guidance from an expert team. Look at how far ahead he was. We are all post-COVID, we're all Zoom experts, but he was doing this long before COVID and Zoom. And, And on Zoom, he uh, reported the first study in the New England Journal of Medicine and Hepatology, I think 2003 maybe, a landmark paper in the New England Journal showed about 1,500 patients with hep C treated at the uh, university specialist center compared to a similar number treated by primary care docs under the support of the virtual multidisciplinary team within the ECHO project, and the outcomes were comparable. And, and he showed this was possible, that you could share expertise on a virtual platform. Fast forward, there are now over 900-plus different ECHO projects and so about three years ago i started an echo project in intestinal failure because in intestinal failure the lack of expertise you and i talked about at the start of this uh podcast um is really magnified you have the combination of a rare disease Lack of expertise, insurance, and geographic uh, obstacles to care uh, conspire to give really poor outcomes. And I thought, oh, I should start an echo project in Tesla failure. It's certainly grown organically. We get uh, we host uh, three sessions a month: two adult sessions, first and third Tuesday, one and two Eastern. Check out our website liftecho.org for anything in Tesla failure. Somebody presents a anonymized case. It's a HIPAA compliant platform. Uh, I just facilitate discussion around the case uh, because we all learn through cases. It's a very good platform. We have a didactic. We archive all the didactics and and that's been going strong. We get now clinicians signing in from six or seven continents. Um, we're actually hoping, we've been told we should be expecting funding from the NIH in the next month or so. For a five year RCT to test the value of lift echo in intestinal failure. So, for anybody interested in intestinal failure, come to our website, liftecho.org. That's but, perfect. But, but for your academic interest, check out the Echo Institute in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's really a movement that started with Hep C, relevant mm-hmm. to you
0: yeah no no no. that's perfect um we'll have a link to the to the lift echo website you know in the show notes of the podcast um i think with that dr Iyer, thank you for coming on the show i appreciate it and um yeah that was excellent thank you very much uh, um
2: hang on to your hats y'all Medicine is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with science. In a conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be understood or construed to be, professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast could, should not be considered as a replacement for the services of a licensed, trained physician, or healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author or guest of this podcast should be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to see competent medical or health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care, in a legal sense, or as a basis for witness testimony. The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy of the statements or opinions put forth. This podcast and its contents do not necessarily say or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated, professionally or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast to any specific commercial product, process, services by trading, trademark manufacturer, or other, does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation.
0: Basically, this podcast is solely educational, and don't sue us. All right. See you next time, guys.